Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Well, the tennis world never sleeps, and we at Cracked Rackets have become well aware of that. Wimbledon feels like months ago at this point. We've had Atlanta. It was you know so much fun to see Demonauer, Fritz final, but we had Opelka, Nori, Paparin, Kasmenovic, so many next-gen guys. Zverev, team, uh, it's team not a next-gen, but Zverev. Uh, I believe Andre Rublev making a comeback, making an ATP final. So many cool things happening there. Obviously, a ton of tennis on that. The ATP WTA tours heading forward into this next week with the city open upon us. It is really the summer hardcourt swing. Of course, one of the coolest parts of the summer hardcourt season. World Team Tennis, the three-week season underway. We are now in the throes of it and actually nearing the finish line. You fans of Crack Rackets know we have been promoting World Team Tennis throughout this regular season. We had Orange County Breakers head coach Alan Hardison on earlier in the year. We had Vegas Rollers head coach Tim Blinkion also on the podcast. Our very own Parson Amati publishing a bunch of interviews with players from Victoria Azarenka, all the way through to Vegas Rollers mascot, icon, and musician from LMFAO, Red Foo. So go give those a listen. You can find all of that content on our website, crackedrackets.com. You know the podcast feeds by now. This one, the Great Shot Podcast, where Max Rothman and I just listed our top 10 next-gen ATP seasons of the year, and Matt Zemek and I did our top 10 next-gen WTA 2019 seasons of the year. So again, just so much great content available for all of you. So go give that a look. On today's podcast, thrilled to stick with the World Team Tennis team, uh, theme. I just finished, and I'm recording this after, an electric 50 minutes with New York Empire head coach Luke Jensen. Luke Jensen, of course, the former 1993 French Open champion with his brother Murphy Jensen. He's a former head coach at Syracuse, so he had a, a ton of thoughts on college tennis from the current format, how it can improve, you know, what, why college tennis is a viable pathway through the pros. We get into a very fun debate over American uh, college players and why they need more scholarships versus international players. He has one take one way. I'm on the other side. So, and it's a very fun, very spirited, very educational back and forth. I will say this, Luke Jensen also incredibly entertaining just throughout every story. Uh, I was all ears. I should also say he's a fellow Michigander, went to East Grand Rapids, one of the rivals I grew up playing against in my high school tennis. So I do apologize, but we delve into that. We delve into his role in the 1987 NCAA semifinal where uh, undefeated number one seed USC upset by uh, the Georgia Bulldogs who go on to win the championship 5-4 at home. Uh, he runs us through that experience. Just that back in the day, you know, I now say USC Virginia, the one, the match they played at Stanford, I believe, in 2011, the best match I've ever seen in terms of a college tennis match. Mitchell Frank, the foot incident against UCLA was very good, but the quality of that USC UVA match, I'd make the case for that anytime. Anyways, this is me getting off topic. The point being, we had a ton of fun topics to talk about. We did not get the chance to get to our rapid fire, but Coach Jensen has promised us more time in the future. I promise. After you listen to this podcast, you will understand why we would want to have him back on. And a huge thank you to him and a good luck to his New York Empire as they compete tonight and tomorrow to end their season in a home and home against the Philadelphia Freedom. 
Also, a bit of an audio note, uh, there was a little bit of scratchiness for the first 10 minutes of this podcast. Coach Jensen calling us from the Freedoms uh, Stadium. Obviously, tough to get a signal inside a tennis stadium, as any fan who's been to any event knows, but uh, the audio gets better and better as the podcast progresses, so I promise hold with us. We didn't want to cut anything because uh, it's all such good content. So with that in mind, Coach Jensen, uh, New York Empire, enjoy. Well, it definitely takes the angle. I would say give you my my broken racket uh, experience when Murphy and I won the French in, in 93. We played uh, LeConte and Gorin Ivanovic in uh, the quarterfinals in the bullring. And the uh, it was when you play a, a Frenchman in there in any capacity, it's crazy. And they're so for their guy. And LeConte was so was so uh, amazing with flair and his shot making and everything. And Gorin always had an edge to him. And he didn't like to lose. And he'd get really upset. And so we end up winning that match. And from the bullring all the way back to the locker room, Goran is like pulling rackets out of his bag, smashing them like in two. And they're like, he's leaving them on the ground. And so my brother and I are walking right behind him and we're picking up all his broken rackets. And we still have them say we have like five or six broken rackets from the bullring all the way to the locker room and in Chatre. It was, uh, that's our broken racket story. Coach, I, I don't even know how to follow that up. Normally, I before we start the interview, I like to give our guests a little spiel, but we're going to go right into it. Welcome, fans, to the Cracked Interviews podcast. I am your host, Alex Gruskin. As you can see, we've got another fascinating World Team Tennis interview lined up today. Uh, New York Empire head coach, former ATP doubles number six player in the world, 1993 French Open champion, USC All-American. The accolades can go on and on and on. Uh, head coach Luke Jensen joining us today. Coach, welcome to the Cracked Interviews podcast. Oh, I'm really psyched. I, I absolutely love this platform. You guys are doing, you know, so amazing, so much. So- such amazing uh, interviews, so many amazing things, and just keep it going, especially World Team Tennis. We need all the pub. Oh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you saying that. Uh, look, I have a ton of things I want to uh, talk about as we get through this. You, uh, with your background in tennis, you know, in uh, tennis media at ESPN, you having played college tennis, coached college tennis, now coaching professional tennis, so many aspects of the sport you've seen and commentated on. I want to talk about all of those things, uh, but the place I think we have to start, and just before we begin real quick, just so you know, on this podcast in Westoff, I apologize, but you know, you're a professional, but sh- if you feel the need to swear, I won't be offended, you know, let it rip coach. Uh, that we have a means... six second delay. Is that how we're running it? <laughs> no, that's why you record beforehand. And then Westoff comes in. Yeah. He cleaned us up afterwards. He's gotten me out of a lot of jams. Let me tell you. That being said, I want to start with your team because I watched your post-match uh, interview, I believe it was with Olivia Decker, after you guys won last night, getting yourselves to 7-5, and five, latching on to that tied for third place in the standings in the race for the 2019 playoffs. You were excited about getting that seventh win. Uh, just how are you guys feeling overall, you know, at this point of the season? Boy, I'll tell you, we're, we're so excited to be in the hunt, um, to be on the on the good side of the of the bubble, basically, we're not looking in. We're kind of looking out, and 
we have the destiny in our in our hands and it's one of those cliches but for us it was always going to be about an attitude and edge and we talked about what was going to be our theme and the theme was we're going to have the most fun of any other team in the league we're going to lead the league in fun and whether we win or lose in world team tennis is a grind world team tennis is competitive the format is fast it's not for everybody you have talent in every roster you get injuries i mean it's like a, a mash unit uh, if you look at the other players and the other teams, we've been pretty healthy, to be perfectly honest. And we've gotten lucky. And all of our marquee players have been extraordinary fitting in from Sloan Stevens to John Isner, Marty Fish. Um, it's, it's hard to come in and fit in right away. But I think because we have the fun element to it, yes, we want to win. That's the ultimate result. But the reality is like yesterday, and we'll do it again today, it's the Marty party. Marty Fish is in town. We're going to have a, you know, we call ourselves Team Awesome. We have a Team Awesome cheer. We have an awesome sauce that helps us uh, in humid conditions that we just do a little. So everything we do has like a fun element to it because I want them to have fun. A professional tour is a grind. You're all by yourself. Even doubles, you play some with your dub, your partner, and then you're off and playing with somebody else. It is a lonely space in the world where people who don't play for money don't understand. You don't make money unless you win. There are no guaranteed contracts. There's, you know, the elite players maybe have a clothing deal, a racket deal, but for the most part, the main core base of the men's and women's tour, you got to earn it every day. And if you get hurt, you ain't making money, but you're paying bills. So it's it's a very difficult life. So for two weeks, we're going to be, we're going to have a lot of fun and keep it loose and fired up. And I feel we've connected. I drafted on character and, and fun, and every one of our players has been responding. You mentioned coming in, fitting in what right away for your players, Sloan, Steven, John Isner, and the gang. You yourself, a first-year head coach of this team, and as I mentioned, you have played college tennis at USC where you were an All-American. You also played nine years of world team tennis uh, earlier on in your career. What was it like for you to come back in in a coaching capacity, and has it been easy for you to pick it up? Has there been adjusting? You know, What has your mentality really been coming into and throughout this 2019 season? To be honest, I was really lucky because, first off, I really wanted to get into coaching when it was the right fit for me um, in World Team Tennis because I was jealous of my brother winning all these trophies. <laughs> he's won six world championships, and he's developed a certain culture with the Washington Castles. And, you know, it's one of these legendary uh, dominant franchises that is uh, is just winning all the time. They had a down year this year with a bunch of injuries. But I was really lucky to be able to use him – as kind of the template, like what did he draft? What were his successful angles? And I could call him up, you know, any time of night because we're family and we've done so much in our lives. And so it wasn't a, it wasn't competition. It was family. So he, when I looked at the draft, he said, you got to draft doubles. You got to draft, you got to draft players that are veterans who can handle it. And then you throw in, you know, your, your flanker and men's singles that isn't going to lose a lot of games because they serve so big. And that's if you look at our roster, it looks like a Washington Castles roster. When we bring in, um, like, Lachenko is a good example. She's had to come in. She's a veteran. She comes out and she gets the deal. And she she doesn't need a lot of um, help. She knows exactly what's, what's working, what's not working. And it's fascinating to see how and Washington works for us. And you've talked about the team aspect in your earlier answer. You've been around all parts of the team game, playing it, now coaching it. 
what is it not only about that, but when you get the opportunity to draft players to form your own team, craft that, that is a tennis nerd like me. You know, that's my dream scenario. And just, I guess, at a very nerdy level, how cool was that experience for you forming your roster coming into this season? It was very similar to what I did with Syracuse, uh, looking for the type of character, type of, you know, the inner beast of what you want um, that you're going to invest in four years in those scholarships. Syracuse, there's a deeper dive. It starts a lot earlier in the process, maybe freshman, sophomore years, year when I was just recruiting Americans. And we were looking at the top 200, 300 Americans in those classes. We were only looking for basically two kids, maybe three. Um, a recruiting class here it was real simple these people are all pros and this format you've got you're you're not looking to develop players you're looking to win and so the biggest factor in world team tennis in my opinion i got this from murphy is that you need fast starters so when i look at someone like uh, ulysses blanche he's our young flamethrower he's 21 years old he's ranked you know maybe in the top 300 or 400 but uh, he's one of these next generation guys, next generation American guys. And I look at him and he's serving 140 miles an hour. In the first three months of this season, he served over 100 aces. And I think he won, I think it was something like 90%, 88, 90% of his uh, matches that he won were first settlements. And I was like, that fits right in the world team tennis. <laughs> Whereas I look at like Allison Risk, and I love the girl, and she had a great run at Wimbledon. But if you look at her run, even in doubles, she would lose the first set. She was a you know a late starter, slow starter. That doesn't fit for us because all of a sudden, like if you're not on top of your game getting into it, you're stuck. You're in a deficit. And there isn't a second set. There isn't a third set in singles. It's one set to five, tiebreaker at four all with no ad, playing the lets, noise, cowbell, the whole shot, music, guys on stilts in Washington. You got to get out of the box fast. So, you know, tennis nerds like us, geek, you know, nerds, we love the tennis gear and everything. We want people to get out of the box fast. Artie Fish is another example. He gets out, he practices for 10 minutes. He's got his rhythm, got his groove, and then he serves rockets. <laughs> and speaking of serving rockets, uh, I do have some fun rapid fire questions for you at the end because there are rumors about you being ambidextrous, serving rockets both right and left-handed. Uh, so just I want you to hold on to that thought for later. But you talk about having a team that's ready to go under adverse circumstances. You guys start the season on the East Coast. You then head west. You beat the Orange County Breakers, a team right on that playoff cusp, 20-19. to 19. Obviously, that's as close as it gets. Um, for your team to sort of overcome that adversity of four and four start to now get to seven and five, what has that you know meant to to your players, and how did you guys get yourself to rebound to now put yourself in a very strong position to qualify for the playoffs? I think the word of being resilient, and they're a very resilient group. Um, I never have to practice. I never have to make sure everybody, even the rookie Blanche, has been there, not just on time but early. And they get to the gate, and it, they, there's not a lot of money sitting. And I, I believe how you are as a person off the court translates how you can be on the court. Um, and so I'm more proud of that aspect because when we face these really tough matches, I mean, last night we could have easily lost that. doesn't, And I think she saved four or five match points, saves that game, ends up losing in the end. But that was the difference in us kind of getting the momentum back. We threw our mixed doubles team in, and uh, you've got 
Martinez Sanchez and you know Neil Skupski, who are the number it's the number one doubles team in the league right now. And that's the reason. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about that sort of double success. I, I am curious for you guys to have the the duo of Skupski and Martina Sanchez to fall back on. You know, it seems like in so many of your matches, mixed doubles, women's doubles, sure things. How important is that? Are those two flights to your team? Yeah, it's absolutely huge. Three of the three of the five sets are doubles. So if you're not good in doubles, <laughs> you ain't winning. So. Uh, we see, you know, different. I was really interested to see the draft because this is back in March. How teams had different philosophies, and I'm always going to go with veterans and veterans who can play doubles and fit multiple roles. And someone like Ulysses, who isn't as skilled in doubles, has picked up a lot of doubles tidbits from Maria uh, Martinez Sanchez and and Skupski and and sitting on the bench with Davis Cup captain Marty Fish. That's a huge advantage for a young guy. That translates into you know, how do you navigate um, a bad path here and there? How do you navigate a deficit? And how do you navigate prosperity when you're serving 5-4? We talk about this a lot. One of the first things when things are going bad is how we um, um, how we deal with uh, a lead. So we're coming up and, you know, maybe we're up, you know, 4-3, 3-2, and, you know, we're down left 30 on our serve. And I just get out there and I say, okay, who's the pressure on? And usually, you know, to a competitor who plays with pressure all the time, they, they don't realize the pressure's on the other side. You're putting the pressure, whether you have a deficit, whether you have a lead, put the pressure on the other side through execution. Put the ball on their racket. Make them come up with a shot. And it's just sometimes the wording just changes the mindset. And all of a sudden, yeah, I can breathe. And I can go and hit this server. I can hit this volley. So – um, we want doubles. We want people that are competent under pressure. And we got that. I truly, I mean, beating Springfield, the defending champions, it's a huge win for us after we got slaughtered by them earlier at their home court. And now we've got two with the, um, the number one team in the league right now. I have a lot of respect for Philly, but it's going to be a benchmark because if we don't win here, um, how's that going to fare in Vegas? I'm very confident we're going to make Vegas and we got to beat those teams. Uh, you talk about that added pressure. I also think given the scoring format, shorter sets up to five, no ad scoring, that added pressure feels that much, you feel that much more as a player playing in that format. And I'm curious, again, you've experienced all of the different formats through tennis. What do you think of the no ad format, the shorter sets, the quicker play? Are you a fan? Does it frustrate you? Just in general, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I played at University of Southern California on no ad. And head coach Dick Leach, who's in the Hall of Fame, uh, who's the Hall of Fame, is uh, extra- was extraordinary in how to teach me. The game. At that point, I was a very good player as in the juniors. I had an AT ranking as an amateur, but I was more of a hitter. I didn't really play the game. And no ad scoring and playing the lets in college back in the 80s helped me. And then I promise you, if you look at my um, U.S. Open runs or my U.S. Open series runs, I from 94 on, Murphy and I played World Team Tennis, and we got so much competitive juice from that. It just translated into really good U.S. Open runs, uh, winning, if you remember, Comac. It was the Long Island Hamlet Cup the week before. We won Washington. We just played a lot better after World Team Tennis because of no ad, because of the pressure. I'm going to give you a counterpoint. Your best U.S. Open moment when you beat Boris Becker in the U.S. Open Junior quarterfinals, Jeez, 1983. 
Uh, seven six in the third. Uh, you're a Michigan guy, and uh, we haven't brought this up yet. Uh, you, I believe you went to EGR. Yeah. So I was. I'm a country day guy. I was the other side of the state. I was looking for fantastic. 1983 boys singles champion. Not too bad. Not too bad. I got lucky my sophomore year, but. Uh... You're Chris Weber, right? He's Country Day. That's us. And growing up, I don't know if you know Ed Nagel, Ricky oh, Brown. Of course. That was uh, they were the club I was growing up at. So both of those guys, very close mentors of mine. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's some serious tennis pedigree. We call it Michigan Tennis Moth. Oh and my gosh! Talk about the state of American tennis back then. When I played Wimbledon the first year in '84, there were 52 Americans men in the main draw of Wimbledon and. Michigan was a huge part of that tennis boom in the 70s. Think of Todd Martin and Lansing. Um, obviously, in the finals of the U.S. Open, finals of Australia, top five in the world. Uh, Mel Washington got to the finals of, of uh, Wimbledon in 96, and he was from Flint, Michigan. Crickstein, top 10 player in the world, famous out of Detroit. Um, and then Murphy and I had our little thing going out of Ludington. And- <laughs> Michigan and of course, was booming. Meredith McGrath was, you know, winning grand slams out of Midland. I mean, we had some serious court just out of that state. Oh my gosh, Amy Frazier, the Russells, smoking Amy Frazier, uh, absolutely. Brad Dancer, now the coach at Illinois. Kind of, yeah, good roots in Michigan. I am shocked. Did you play four years? I'm ready to do 20 minutes on Michigan high school tennis. By the way, okay, yeah, well, I want to get <laughs> in on that. Do you guys play? Do you play all four years? No, no. So the. Uh, the first year I was in Granville, Michigan, Granville High School didn't want wanted me to go to every practice. It was kind of a waste, to be honest, because I was, you know, one of the better players, and it wasn't. So the coach didn't want us to play. So the sophomore year, I transferred to East, and the coach said, "Listen, I don't have to come to practice. You don't have to go to practice. I'll tell you, Cranbrook, you have to play, or you know, we had to play wicket with Christine and." So he really understood, like, this guy's a special cat. We're going to treat everybody fairly, but not the same. And to me, I mean, it was, it was the most important element of growing up um, in Michigan is I had a school, I had a program that believed in me. Um, I will say after I won that state, we didn't win the team state that year. We lost it by one. We I think it came down to we had a match point to win it. We lost to Cranbrook. I'd won the individual, and uh, the next year I was invited by the uh, – U.S. national team to play junior Wimbledon, Italian, French, all of those tournaments. And so I was committed with the team to Europe. Coach said, hey, I went to be loaded. And I said, coach, I won a for you last year, and I'm going to Wimbledon. And it's going to be lots of Wimbledons. I go, I don't know that. <laughs> I'm going to Wimbledon, man. <laughs> so it's just like Michigan high school sports is, you know, is really important. And in some people's minds, bigger than Wimbledon. So I love it. <laughs> yeah, look, I see that 1983. I'm going to spoil one of my rapid fire questions now. Looking back on it, you talked about losing by one point. Which loss hurts more? That one point loss to Cranbrook in 83 or that 5-3 loss, or maybe it was 5-4 to uh, University of Georgia in 87? Ooh, those are fighting words. Those <laughs> are fighting words. I, I don't know if you played it in the truth, but I talk about legends all the time. If you competed at any type of level, there's the match that you let get away. And I lost some uh, Grand Slam finals of the French and mixed and lost the Aussie Open final and mixed and had things all over the place. But the one that got away for me is the one where I let my undefeated USC Trojans down 
in that 87 and it just uh i'll tell you it's still to this day i mean i want to see any georgia bulldog and i want to bury him <laughs> for me 2010 forest hills north state semifinals i was playing with my brother's former partner they had won three titles their first three years my brother's two years older than me i was playing one doubles with him as a sophomore we got blown out by this team one in three. Oh, devastating but then the next year yeah but but then we had the chance to play that exa- i played the same team with a different partner state finals the next year and we got our revenge so i was able to get over it well, listen, it's Martina Navratilova. I've asked her. She goes, you know what? I was playing for my 10th singles title at Wimbledon, and I lost to Conchita Martinez, and still to this day, it pisses me off. <laughs> it's not sure about it, the one that got away. That's what I always say. It's because it's an individual sport, right? It's like you just remember who it was and where you were. I think But you think about it. Roger Federer's never going to live this one down at Wimbledon. Like, that, you know, of all the great titles, all the great matches, and he's had ones that have, you know, slipped away. But the one that got away was this year. I mean, to have be so close, you got double match point, you're serving against one of your nemesis. You just beaten Nadal in the semis with a you know a great win. And you let this one go, you don't sleep well for the rest of your life. I mean, that's just gonna sit out there like McEnroe lost at Lendl in eighty four at the French. And I think he only lost three matches that year, but that one is the one that got away from McEnroe. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And look, I do want to talk about your time at USC, some of your time on the pro tour as well. But getting real back quickly to the New York Empire, this their 2019 season. As I mentioned, you guys are seven and five. You've got a home and home now to end your season with the freedoms. Now, in terms of playoff scenarios, I believe if you guys win and the Breakers beat or and the Breakers lose to Springfield tonight, that's a clinch for you guys. But just in terms of controlling your own destiny. You win these last two. Obviously, you'll work your way in. Uh, what's it going to take for you guys to get over this final hump? As you imagine, it's been a ton of men, uh, ton of matches over these past two and a half, three weeks. Two more now. The home stretch. You're thirteenth and fourteenth. What sort of effort? What sort of you know team work is it going to take for you guys to get over that hump and qualify for the playoffs? Well, we we built on every every experience here, good and bad, win or lose. We talked about the fun element. We talked about. You know, there's the culture we have on this team. Um, to be perfectly honest, we put ourselves in this position because we believed in the team and the concept, and we never got discouraged. Yeah. Is that number one team in the league? And, and to me, the person who is the most pivotal component, when I played Martina Navratilova, was like she was the most dominant player in world team tennis. She couldn't be stopped. Um, when Murphy was run, doing his runs at Washington, it was Martina Hingis. That that person is Taylor Thompson. And we brought in uh, Levchenko to cancel that. You look at last year, you look at this year. It's Taylor Thompson who can play singles. She goes in and she dominates the space. If we're going to be in Vegas, that's the person. That's the reason I brought That's the that brought in, you know, Marty Fish this time is that we saw that that kind of schedule and we said you know what that is what's going to make or break us is that those last two matches and we got to bring out the the mindset and we a target and i love taylor townsend i love the way she plays she's got so many options she's tough mentally she's a she will knife fight you for some some players that we got on the bench that aren't afraid for a fight 
Yeah, I, I, look, I, I love to hear that. It's funny because I played club tennis in college, and I, I this always comes up when I do these world team tennis interviews, and I apologize for that. But having played in the format, we had a girl, Laura Ukrostez, now my older brother's loving girlfriend, so it's funny how that works. Um, but she was a former varsity player at our school, and she comes down and just, I think she was like 34 in the ITF juniors, and just to have that sort of option to have her able to play mixed, have her able to play singles or doubles it just that is the single most important piece and so as you guys look for you know qualifying for the postseason do you guys think you have the chops throughout the roster you've talked about it to bring home the first title in empire team history I, there's no doubt i mean we drafted that way um the results are showing that i mean what we did against springfield um and so you know to be honest i mean that's always the goal anyone who goes into any type of competition. I could never understand someone who's like, you know, if I get to the second week, I'll be happy. I'm here to win. I'm not here for the t-shirt. <laughs> and so the, the thing is, is that, you know, this team is going to concentrate on tonight and we have the target tonight. And this is going to be one or loss based on how we do against, against Taylor and, you know, don't have to win the sets, but we got to be competitive. And then Marty's going to take over and our big double is going to take over. And, it's going to be fun. And no matter what happens, we don't lose. We learn and we're going to battle again tomorrow. So it's going to be how this whole race to Vegas plays out um, with three teams tied right now. And uh, it's getting tight and it's going, it's, it's a lot of fun. I I completely agree with you. And with that in mind, just a couple of uh, questions about world team tennis in general. I think you've made clear, and I've discussed this in previous podcasts as well, but the thing that stands out about world team tennis, obviously that middle T team, it seems like team tennis is an oxymoron when it comes to the usual thought about the sport. Other than doubles, you see the grand slams, it's individuals competing you know, at the highest mountains, highest peaks of the sport. Of course, this is a breath of fresh air, this college tennis, this format, to see these players, you know, you see a complete different side of them when you get to see them compete in the team atmosphere and I know that's sort of a leading question coach but you again have you you coached in college tennis you played and now coach in world team tennis what is it about the team format that you know keeps being attractive to you that you keep coming back to and why do you think the average tennis fan will enjoy the world team tennis format if they get to experience it I, I think when you're on the bench there's something special about the bench during competition it really unites you, you know what I mean? Because you got your, everybody's out there coaching and helping the other side. Everybody's grabbing the towels during these timeouts and during the changeovers. Everybody's contributing to the greater good and, and you know, towards the result that everybody wants. Everybody's name is on that result. If you win, your name's on it too, man. And, and if you lose, that's on your record too. And I, I think the is the most special thing in sports. I played basketball. I played football. So, you know, I wasn't a tennis kid kind of grown, but I played tennis. But the, the biggest thing was, I feel, is that I had a team background. So I wasn't a just a loner, lone wolf kind of individual singles player that had a, you know, really good junior run. I played other sports and I understood the team concept. I knew under the role of the coach, the assistant coach, the equipment manager, uh, the best player in the team, the worst player in the team that everybody contributed in their role, their lane. And I think tennis could really use this kind of format. Look what they do with the 
the Hotman Cup now it's no longer that, but you go Labor Cup. I mean, it's interesting. The ratings are through the roof. People want to see these individuals team up and play. I mean, who doesn't want to watch Roger and Rafa play? Who doesn't want to watch uh, Serena and Annie Murray play? There's something about team. And when you put that bench out there and you add a few more elements, boy, is it magical. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. And even though, even more specific uh, in terms of an in-match experience, if you are a fan, if you've been to you know Cincinnati or the U.S. Open or you know any scale of professional event, what is different in your opinion about the in-match experience of World Team Tennis versus that sort of event? Because in my opinion, there are distinct differences. Oh, huge differences. I mean, you you can't really coach there. The, the timeout situation we have, we have timeouts that you can settle down your player i'm for coaching i I think i mean the reality is that everybody is coaching out there they don't even hide it they admit it it's just too hard to uh supervise too hard to you know kind of watch and and referee it so to me it's like let it happen it makes it more interesting i mean just because there's coaching on the court doesn't mean it's going to be the magical formula and um coaches make mistakes too I think it just makes the product better. Um, when you're on the tour and when you're on these pro tournaments, it is, you know, it's really, you're a bunch of like assassins and snipers. You're very individual. You're, like I said, lone wolves out there and you're just kind of marching through your draw and you're going week to week. But in this team tennis, I mean, we're talking about, you know, who's doing what with the laundry, who's doing what with, you know, the transportation and practice courts. It's team in every element of your day. Yeah, and it, it would be so hard to, you know, elongate the World Team Tennis Tour season just because of how many individual events all of these players are committed to. Uh, but I, I'm curious in terms of the overlap between the two products. Do you think there are rules implemented at World Team Tennis that are applicable and maybe should be uh, implemented at the ATP WTA levels? And then maybe vice versa, do you think World Team Tennis could maybe take aspects from those two or, and that you think are translatable? Is there an overlap between the two sports where we can start maybe getting the best of both worlds in both types of events? Well, when I talk, when you ask questions like, you know, what's, you know, how is the overlap in these questions? It's they're very good questions, great conversations to have. If I was Grand Poobah for <laughs> tennis for a day, you know, what what would I do? A tennis me, czar. Make, a tennis czar. Okay, and that's everything. I think we are too fractioned. I, I I mean, I think college tennis has lost its way. I think it's just off in oblivion, and I see bowling, college bowling on ESPN, but I don't see college tennis. It's too hard to to manufacture a, a product broadcasting-wise and show the brilliance of college tennis because there are six balls in play at the same time with six singles matches, whereas if you watch football, basketball, soccer, there's one ball, one field. So to me, college tennis should have the world team tennis format. There shouldn't be men's and women's. It should be exactly co-gender. And you have five sets and it's over in like two and a half hours and everybody's fun. And you've got rivals. You've got USC versus UCLA on one court and you pack it in and you make noise and you have music and it's crazy. That should be college tennis. It should be the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, No, I'm sorry for cutting you off. 
I'm all in on this idea. This is the club tennis format. Club tennis is the world team tennis format. And, you know, we obviously are not as good as the varsity players. That's why they're varsities. But I would be completely in on that dynamic. The issue is, you know, you then, you know, you shorten the team rosters, probably not as big as that point at that point. But again, so, okay, so I know this goes all over the world, your podcast, but I'm telling you, you, I'm an American competitor and I competed against the players from around the world, some of the best who ever played. But I'm, again, we'll always go back to American scholarships should go back to American taxpayer parents. And I recruited only Americans. I'm very proud of that. Um, But 75, 76% of D1 players are uh, uh, scholarships. uh, D1 players that have scholarships are international players. D2, I think it's 90%. And so our American product suffers because the college thinks that the American that international player is better. I disagree. My record shows that, you know, we beat international players and international teams. You just got to develop and you got to believe in the American player. So to me, when you say we got to, you know, shave down the rosters and stuff, who do we lose? The kid from Uzbekistan or Brazil, our kids can go down there and get academic or athletic scholarships down there. So why should they be able to come up and get these scholarships? I'm looking at some of these schools and I'm not talking at Stanford or USC. I'm talking like South Dakota State, like the Jackrabbits. And like one season, they're 0-14. They don't have one American on that squad. And you're 0-14. Take the high school state champion or the runner-up. I mean, how does that – it just kills me when I see that. So if you want to trim the rosters down and say, I'm sorry, Coach, we – I mean, the budget's already tied already. There isn't this unlimited fun, you know, this money tree for these programs trim it down let's be smart and let's make a great product out of it so i think i love uh no ad i love I, i'm not um i like the normal sets to be honest i like a little bit longer set but uh, you know a world team times you go to five and tiebreaker for all um if i was the czar i'd make uh men's singles two out of three sets instead of uh best of five but the caveat is that everybody in the draw has to play another event you have to play, you have to play doubles or mixed so if we lose Roger in the first round, he'd have to he'd be in the doubles. That's my little rock and roll. If Luke Jensen were, you know, Grand Poobah of tennis for a day, I love one ranking, one ranking, one ranking, one tour, and so we'd have Indian Wells, Miami. We are our very best. We have the best business model in professional sports, the best because we're the only one that offers co-gender uh, competition at all of its Super Bowls. Think about it. Every Grand Slam, men and women, same pay, same opportunity. Now the men play three out of five, and I hear that argument. I play that argument, but I'm looking at what's in the best interest of the game. And the best interest is, and I can show in the TV ratings, people don't watch best of five stats. They may watch the, the end of Wimbledon, but they faded off and they went to some other show and they come in and out. It shows you. It's not my opinion. These are ratings facts. They don't want to watch five sets because they got light. They don't have five hours to invest. So how can we make it shorter to the point? Because women's tennis being best out of three, people aren't leaving. Serena was, you know, playing at Wimbledon, lost the first set early on. People stayed and they're bouncing back between the Kyrgios, you know, train and against Nadal on center court. And then uh, Serena's battle on uh, court one. And it's fascinating. People are watching tennis because of the interest the intrigue. So 
I was, I'm glad you bring all of this up because one of the questions I wanted to talk about in a 2017 interview with Town Square, Delaware, you brought up this same uh, principle about college tennis, why you think there, you know, your distaste for the lack of athletic scholarships available for U.S. players uh, in that time, D1 tennis, 76% of all of our men and women's scholarship players are international. The D2 level, I think you said 90, it's 92 was the number you gave there. Uh, and I, I do want to push back on that a little bit because, and you look particularly on the men's side at these past champions, you know, in the past decade, maybe even in the 21st century, guys like Paul Jubb from Great Britain, Petros Risokos from Cyprus, Blaz Rola, uh, you look back, Samdev Devarman, who you could argue had one of the greatest careers in college tennis history. Obviously, on the pro tour now, you see a guy like Kevin Anderson who comes over and has, you know, the Virginia guys and go on and on. Dom Inglot, the career he's had doubles-wise coming over in the college tennis. I, I don't know why... I think it's an it's a net benefit is the obvious argument to me having those guys filter through the college tennis system it raises the level of the product and ultimately if college tennis is supposed to be a vehicle for players to make the transition from juniors to pros make it a viable path for those not ready immediately for the pro circuit it's a benefit to those players to have the best crop of international talent available to train against now I completely hear your argument on why American tennis players, you want spots available for them. And of course, uh, you know, you look throughout and you would like, I think though we have seen a steady rise in the amount of players going to college tennis, then making the transition to the pros and having some sort of success, at least early in their career. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, it would just to me seem wrong to filter out those people. There are eligibility rules. I suppose you can change. It is a little bit ridiculous that sometimes a 22 year old can come from abroad having played three years of pro tour events versus an American who would be ineligible if they tried to do the same. That's a nitpicking issue. But in terms of, you know, excluding foreign players in general, I think that would be a long-term negative for college tennis as a product. Well, I mean, it's so swung on the international side. I'm not saying, listen, I played at USC and I had a Swede and I had a uh, guy from Mexico. And they're two guys, two great players that contributed and everything. And I'm okay with that part of that. But when you're okay, you're a Michigan guy, right? Mm-hmm. How about Michigan State? How are they contributing to the, the game of tennis? All they do is recruit international players. They don't even look, if you said you're from Michigan, they won't even give you a chance on the walk-on team, much less the club team. That's not fair. And you look at some of the, even in, I, I did a study just on the state of American tennis within at the collegiate level, you know, Grand Valley and, um, hope is there, but anything like D1, D2, it's outside of the University of Michigan, Eastern Michigan, they had all international players. And I think they only had like one season where there was even a winning season. And you're telling me you can't find players in Detroit who can ball? I mean, I, I just, and they don't win anyway. This is, you're looking at the very Kevin Anderson. I mean, this is, these guys are outliers. And, you know, I, I just, we got to do more for these kids who are coming out investing in the junior tennis in the United States. And they have to have a pathway, a, a spot, um, a chance to get some of these, the scholarship money instead of someone who went to Eastern Michigan or Michigan State getting these scholarships and they don't win squat. I'm going to lose. Give me a kid from Detroit. Give me a kid from Minneapolis or 
the UP, man. Give me some of that <laughs> the upper Michigan, northern Michigan stuff. But it, it, there's talent out there. You gotta, you gotta grow it. You gotta give it opportunity. But uh, I agree 100% with you. You know, there are the examples of Neil Skupski on my team. Went to LSU. Is it Robert Farah, fellow Trojan, now Wimbledon champion? Fellow Trojan, exactly. But to me, it's the underbellies. Like, there's so many more that are just going through the system and just not contributing and i know we can this is a whole new podcast yeah look i was i was going to say i agree this is an entirely thing and i'm I'm going to transition here a little bit because again i appreciate and i think all of our tennis fans will appreciate your passion about this topic having played you know you were a number one junior in the country as i mentioned quarterfinalist at junior u.s open quarterfinalist junior wimbledon Obviously, there were avenues for you from the get-go to pursue pro tennis. You decided not to do that. You took the route of going to college tennis, playing for the legendary coach Dick Leach at USC, getting to be on the team with his eldest son, Rick Leach, as well, an NCAA uh, champion in his own right. Roommate, my friend. Roommate, Rick Leach. So getting to that, you know, what was it about college tennis that appealed to you? Well, to be honest, I, I was looking at pros. I'd done really well in 84, um, 83 and 84 in juniors. and had a nice little um, ATP ranking kind of building. And the captain of the U.S. Davis Cup at, at the time was Arthur Ashe. And he sat down with me. And anyone who's ever had any interactions with the great Arthur Ashe never forgets it. And for me, he said, uh, you know, what are your plans, pro or amateur? And I said, well, I... I really have always wanted to be a pro tennis player. And he, he gave me the breakdown of where I was on the ATP tour and how much money I'd made. And at that time, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about how much money you're making or anything because I'm 17, 18 years old. And he said, you need to grow up and you need to learn, you know, how to balance a checkbook and do your laundry and all these things, you know, go to school. And he went to UCLA and, um, and he said, Connors went to UCLA for a year. McEnroe went to Stanford for a year. Um, it is it's not the way for you to grow up and get away from home. And it was the greatest decision I made. And I went to the greatest school for me at the University of Southern California because when I was recruited, it was like Dick Leach is saying, you come here, you'll win a grand slam. And there's Stan Smith and Dennis Ralston and all Raul Ramirez and all these great Trojans who had gone on through the program because college tennis wasn't the end point for your tennis. It was really just the beginning of performance tennis. And that's exactly how it was for myself, Rick Leach, my brother Murphy, um, Scott Melville, and all these guys on my team who, you know, Melville reached the finals of Wimbledon. That's not just one team I had. And it was just incredible to be part of that experience. And I would never give it up because if I were to have turned pro um, and not listen to Arthur Ashe, I think I would have been a shallow, uh, shadow of a player, a shell of the player, because I wasn't grown up and ready to handle big boy issues on the road so with that personal experience in mind weighing against what again i'm saying this respectfully what what were, what were criticisms of the current college tennis system do you still think going to college tennis for those uh, young players who are somewhere in between that ready for pro or maybe need a year of fine-tuning in college uh range do you think college tennis is a path for them to develop and ultimately reach the professional tour Absolutely, because now the average age in the top 100 on the ATP Tour is 20, 28. I think the average age in the top 100 in the women's game is 26. Now, Coco Goff is about to shadow that and bring that down a little bit and a couple of the other youngsters. But for the most part, 
you got to be an adult to handle this lifestyle. This is not easy. Um, you see the phenoms of the past of Martina Hingis and Chris Everett, Tracy Austin, these teenagers that did so well. The power wasn't there. These, I mean, college players bludgeon the ball. Pros, men and women, hammer the ball. I mean, we have a girl out here just like smoking the ball. I mean, yeah, this uh, saw a girl the other day like serving 118. Coco Goff is serving 120. I mean, <laughs> you gotta be a flamethrower <laughs> to do this. You can't be just Susie Moonballer and get away with that anymore. So my thing is, and I have nieces and nephews that are playing, I want them to go to college. There's nothing wrong with going to college. You can still play pro tournaments on the side, build that experience. And I'm telling you, come out at 21, 22, you've played in college, you've gone socially with your generation. Cause they say you can always go back. No, you can't. When I, when I, I was, you know, in my late 20s. I'm not going back to college and finish. I went two years. I turned pro. I mean, I wasn't going to go back. So you got to go with your generation, make some bad mistakes, learn from it, pick yourself up and play. Um, and then at 21, 22, you've got a 10, 15-year career. I mean, look at some of these guys. I mean, it's incredible how long they're playing. Roger Federer is almost winning grand slams. I mean, he's a point for winning Wimbledon. And he's what, like, nine thousand years old. I mean, he's he's almost forty. <laughs> Venus, Serena. I mean, look at these guys. Are, you know, the women are having children and playing better. Serena's right there knocking at the door for twenty-four majors, and she's got a real life. So, you know, there's no rug out there at sixteen, seventeen, seventeen, eighteen years old. In my opinion. No, I completely agree with you. That's why we at Crack Rackets are such big proponents of college tennis. Uh, we've talked about the playing aspect as well, but I, I guess uh, you look at the exceptions recently on the men's side, the Tommy Pauls, Riley Opelkas, Taylor Fritz's, Tiafos. Those are players who are number one juniors in the world. They were junior slam champions, exceptions, not the rule. And you look at you know players ranked 100 through 300 of both the ATP singles and doubles tours. So many players with college experience littered in. So I completely agree with you. I, I do want to ask, we talked a little bit about about that 1987 experience, but just looking back at your college tennis days, I guess what's it like to be the number one team in the country, be undefeated, you know, going into the NCAA semifinals, that sort of dream run when you have Rick Leach coming back for another season to play for his dad, get his dad that first title. Now, again, I know a little bit of a bitter ending to say the least, but how special is a run like that? It's unbelievable, and we talked about it when we brought in Scott Melville to anchor the fourth spot there and and play doubles with Rick. And um, we just I was playing with um, Eric Amon, who was in the eighty the eighty four U.S. Olympic team. So we were stacked. We, had, we and Amon was playing six for us. So we would go in, and the match was already over. I mean, we were boat racing teams. I think we beat UCLA three times that year, and I don't think we gave up a match. And when you're, when you're boat racing quality programs like that, you know you're something special. And honestly, we weren't even looking at other teams. We were looking at history. McEnroe's team in Stanford was the last one. I think it was 78 that went undefeated. And so I remember that specifically having that goal in mind to be that team and to make our mark. And, you know, for me, I was up a set in 3-1 and in singles to shut down that team at Georgia. And I got distracted and I wasn't really nervous. I didn't, even to this day, never felt I choked it, but I just started messing around and trash talking with some, 
some uh, fraternity brothers that were in the in the uh, Georgia fraternity kids and boys and drunk and the whole shot. And uh, <laughs> so all of a sudden, post three two and three all, and all of a sudden it's, things start slipping away. And then we go into the doubles, and we're very strong in doubles. And it comes down to my match with Eric Heyman, and we've been dominant very well. Didn't doing very well at two doubles, and um, it just you know some matches you just can't get it back. And the momentum was too much. It was the greatest tennis experience, learning experience to get into that environment. And I don't think that NCAA should ever leave. Men or women should leave Georgia because they get the college game. And that atmosphere is electric. And it was so positive for me, even though in a loss, I wouldn't be the pro I was. I couldn't have won a French. I could have won so many big matches on the tour if I didn't have that those scars to for me to remember how much you have to focus at the point where you can really put a player away. Yeah. And I, I agree with you The Dan McGill tennis center, you know, frat fraternity members, the, the rowdy crowd, that's part of the experience. I will also note in 1987, you knocked out, I believe Dan Goldberg, Ed Nagel and the Wolverines in that round of 16. I'm still a little bitter about it. And I just, the stories I heard, oh my God, the amount of Paul, Paul Harhus and Buff Faro, Kelly Jones, Jerome Jones, uh, Robbie Weiss, all of those names, unfortunately, too familiar with them for someone who was, you know, born in 1995. But yeah, that being said, uh, again, just kind of looking at your professional career, you reached number six in the doubles and you were a junior Kalamazoo champion as well. Doubles has always been something you exceeded at. But I am curious, would you say, because college tennis for a lot of players is often their first experience with doubles becoming such a big part of the game. Is it fair to say you fell in love with doubles in college or was pursuing professional doubles something you always had in the back of your mind? Uh, I, when I jumped out on the circuit in 87, the first three months, I, I got I was given some great information, not from the ATP, not from the USTA, but from Robert Van Hoff, who was a fellow Trojan. He had, uh, won the NC2As. He was on the circuit already, and I was kind of trying to fill out my, my calendar in the fall of 87. And he said, hey, you got to go to cheap points. I mean, once you start playing for your living, this isn't amateur hour anymore. You've got to get cheap points. You go to the easiest draws possible. And it's not in the United States. There's too much competition in the U.S. There's too much competition um, in certain areas of the world because there's really good players. And to fight through all of that that carnage, of it just wears you out. So I said, you know, like, where do you go? And he, he sent me to Portugal for two satellites back then. That was eight weeks. And then sent me down to South Africa for, I think it was another five or six weeks. Um, and that was, you know, three or four months of that. And I went from like zero to 160 something in singles and doubles right away. And I was in the game and exactly what he said, you go down there and you grind it out. And I did. And, and um, I got to that point where, you know, now I'm in the game, I'm writing all these challengers. I'm in the, just on the outside of some HP tour events, playing smart, getting ready to go down to Australia, playing those qualifying at the Australian open. And then I had a couple of injuries and, all of a sudden, when I got back healthy, doubles took off and singles just kind of plateaued. And I'm and on doubles. I, I mean, I'm getting I'm making money. I'm staying in five star hotels. I'm <laughs> flying, you know, I'm driving in Mercedes Benz and Beamers and Ferraris test drives and things like that. Whereas in singles, I'd have to go down to the satellites and keep battling. And I chose to live the five star lifestyle. <laughs> I like the ATP tour. And so I had my moments and things like that, but for the most part, um, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was 
attacking doubles. I just doubles worked out for me. And I, I look, we want to be conscious of your time at, at 6.30 or 7 p.m. match tonight. I'm sure you want to get ready for it, but I would be remiss if I did not ask. And it's amazing, you know, we've gone 50 minutes in. I know you get asked about this all the time, but it has to come up. How special is it when you get to go through a doubles career, you get to achieve all of the things you dream about in a tennis career and do it all with your younger brother, Murphy? How how cool is that for you? I have an older brother. Uh, we played one high school quad together and we went 3-0 and and I was, you know, I'm still in love. We still talk about it. You won the 1993 French Open with your brother. Uh, just how cool of an experience is that to have that sort of thing happen? Yeah, we had our 25th anniversary last year. The French championships were really nice and, and acknowledged us and, and invite us over and everything. And I mean, when you do something that special and you dream about it, and it's like, we always want to do something like that together. And when you do it, you like, no one can ever say you weren't good enough. No one can say you can't do it. Or you're from a small town in, in Michigan, or you're not, you know, you don't have enough means to play this game. You're a made man. And for us, you know, it was just, it was a extraordinary run. And we, that's another podcast to go through every one of those matches, down <laughs> match points, breaking strings on match points, being in a fight in the court and round, third round. And, you know, it's so many things going on. That's its own story, breaking my brother's jaw after we won and <laughs> celebrating and, and just all of it. There's a whole story there. But for the most part, I'm proud because it was a family journey. The tennis, the game of tennis was our family uniter. My sisters could play. My parents could play. My grandparents could play. We'd go to the same tournaments. The Pi Cypher in South Bend was an annual family event to go down and play and watch play. And so the uh, not only winning the French, but playing in all the slams with my sisters as well as my brother is one of my – I played uh, the U.S. Open with my sister Rachel in mixed doubles. I played Wimbledon, my sister Rebecca um, in the 96 – Australian Open, we're the only family in tennis history to have four siblings playing the main draw of the same slam. And that's a game of over 200 years. So it's from, you know, four courts in a small town in Ludington, Michigan. You know, it's it's just truly amazing what happens when a family gets involved in a great sport like tennis and can take it globally. So the natural follow-up is, how athletic are your parents? Dad played for the New York Giants. and okay. uh, pretty So pretty athletic. Mom's six three and used to average fifty points a game. So we had we had the genes, but more importantly, they gave us the competitive fight and fire. They shaped the competitiveness how we behaved on the court. To be honest, we weren't allowed to be go Mac and roll. We weren't allowed to throw rackets, break our rackets, hit pull us off the court. There was just one thing we had to accomplish to get our parents' approval, and that was one hundred percent effort. And they judged that. It was, were we going to be the hardest workers in practice? Were we going to try harder on the court than the other side of the net? And that was the key formula. It was, of course, you had to put the ball in the play and improve your forehand and backhand tactics. But the bottom line is we just learned to be ultimate fighters on the court, and we weren't afraid of anything. And that's because our parents taught us how to compete. Any uh, behind-the-scenes competitive moments when all the siblings got on the court that you're uh, willing to share? Oh, geez, there's so much. Yeah, there's so much there. <laughs> I hate to do this to you, but I got a team practice right now. But you can call me anytime. You can count on me on Crack Rack. No, I completely understand. Well, then I'm going to hit you with one last question, if that's all right, and then we'll let you go. 
Um, and again, I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm reserving the right to bring you back on because I got a lot left to ask you. But the most pressing question I had coming into this interview, the most pressing question, I think, on the minds of fans of the New York Empire and head coach Luke Jensen they know Luke Jensen as the bad boy member of a brotherly duo who's got the long ponytail, who's got the bandana. My last question to you, how much do you miss the ponytail? Oh, every day. Every day. <laughs> I'm really upset. I got a lawsuit with uh, Rogaine because Rogaine promised I would grow hair. It never happened back in the 90s. And it just kept going back and back. It was just, I was, I was, I was just, I tried. I really did. I put all the everything into it but Rogaine didn't come through for me. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Sorry, Ro- sorry Rogaine. Yeah, look, I was never hoping for a Rogaine sponsorship, but coach, thank you so much. Seriously, we really appreciate you taking the time and good luck to you and the Empire throughout the rest of the season. Thanks, buddy. Michigan Tennis Mafia, keep up the love. Always and take care.